Kia ora, and welcome to another episode of Kenning on Identity. I'm your host, Waylon Kenning, and I'm slowly walking up a hill, hence the heavy breathing. On today's episode of Kenning on Identity, I want to talk about one of the components of verifiable credentials, and that is called decentralized identifiers. Decentralized identifiers are the equivalent of a street address on a verifiable credential. They're unique, and they really say where something was from, and sometimes they say where something is going. So let's explore why we need decentralized identifiers, and let's have a look at some of the characteristics of them. In a verifiable credential, essentially this thing, this claim, it says, Waylon has climbed Mount Everest. Something has to issue that, the issuance of the verifiable credential. And in an earlier podcast, we talked about the ecosystem around verifiable credentials. Just a recap. You have an issuer, they issue a credential. You have a holder, holders are people like you and I, we hold the credential, generally inside some sort of digital wallet, could be an app, could be in the browser. And there are verifiers. Verifiers want to know the information inside the verifiable credential. So if something, an issuer, issues a verifiable credential. How do you know that they are the real issuer and they are who they say they are? Well, they have to have some sort of identifier. When you get a letter in the mail that says, I don't know, ANZ Bank, the envelope will say ANZ Bank and the postal address that it came from, we'll say ANZ Bank and some sort of street address. You know, the return to sender address. That is essentially the issuer's identifier, at least when it comes to letters in the mail. Verifiable credentials have the same sort of thing. So, an issuer has an issuer decentralized identifier. That's who this creden- who made this credential in the first place. So we have to have at least one of those. Then the credential goes to something, right? Most of the time. So you can have a credential that's issued to something And in that case, that something should have an identifier. So you can imagine we're going to post the letter. And that letter says, uh, and it's going to go to Waylon Kenning, 123 Lovelid Street in Berenbore. Which is not really where I live, but it happens to be a roadside in front of me. 
So the subject, the person who's going to, or the entity that's going to have the verifiable credential, the holder, you could put their did in it and say, hey, the subject of this verifiable credential is this decentralized identity. But in the same way as you can receive mail that is addressed to you, you also can receive mail that isn't addressed to you. Typically we'd call those flyers, some people would call them spam, but sometimes you might get those letters and they say like, to the homeowner, please sign up to insurance with us, or to the homeowner, have you considered buying a new fireplace? That isn't for you specifically, but you just have to happen to have it. You are the bearer of that bit of information. And we can do that as well with a verifiable credential. We can leave out the decentralized identifier who it's going to, and the rest of it is still valid. And you can say, uh, whoever has this verifiable credential is entitled to one free coffee. So it's not Waylon gets one free coffee, it's just whoever happens to have it. The bearer of it has the benefit of that credential. And you might say, well, that's, like, why do you want one of those ones? Like, that's the whole point is to, you know, be confident about the identity and, like, just, you know, if there is no identity that's really attached to it, it's kind of funky, right? Well, the core use case for these bearer-type credentials is going to be for credentials, for people, who do not have digital technology. Good example is not everyone has a cell phone. How do you issue a person who doesn't have a cell phone uh, a, a verifiable credential? Well, you could put it inside a QR code and you could print it physically on a piece of paper, which is what happened in New Zealand with the New Zealand COVID pass. There's lots of types of scenarios where you might want to do that. You could put them on site on a personal identity credential, you could put them on a permanent residency card, you could even put them on things in the world. So a good example could be unique manuka honey from New Zealand. You could put it on there so that anyone who scans that that, that QR code will see this credential and the the jar of honey doesn't have a decentralized identifier, it's, it can't present it, it's not a thing, it doesn't live. But what it can do is it can have a credential with high information assurance, i.e. the information in it is authentic, because the issuer issued it and signed it with a digital certificate related to their decentralized identifier. But it has no info, uh, it has no identity assurance. You don't really know the identity who's presenting it. Like the jar of honey and can't say, hello, here's how I demonstrate this is bound to me. So you have to do it some other way. Anyways, kind of a bit of a digression. 
Going back to the topic of decentralized identifiers, issuers have them, holders have them, and verifiers have them too. So when you want to see the information inside a verifiable credential, you request that information from a holder. And you do it in such a way through a kind of funky set of technologies called a verifiable presentation. But essentially, you send a signed request as the, as the verifier. So let's just say, I happen to be I happen to be an online, um, an online alcohol store, and I want to see your um, your proof of age. I want to make sure that you're over 18. So I, as the online alcohol store, will say, "Hello, I would like to see some credential that you have that proves you are over 18." And I sign this request as being from Wayland's Alcohol Store, and my decentralized identifier was did colon web colon waylonsalcoholstore.co.nz and then your wallet says oh I've got this request um, and I'm going to generate a response to it and I'm also going to make sure that I'm going to uh, sign it in such a way that you know it, it's truly from me and you also know that I'm the entity that you gave it to in the first place. So there's some cryptographic stuff in there that sort of makes sure that uh, both of those parties are aware of each other. But really what I wanted to tell you is that all the participants in the ecosystem, issuers, who could be private companies, government agencies, theoretically could be people, holders, who are people like you and I, but don't always have to be, and verifiers, every party has a decentralized identifier. Well, that's all very fine and good, but what are these things? So practically speaking, a decentralized identifier is a unique set of you know, um, letters and numbers, so it has to be unique because you can't have multiple entities having the same decentralized identifier because it, it wouldn't identify stuff. And it also has some properties in terms of its relationship to cryptographic material. And by cryptographic material, I mean uh, like uh, a public key that that decentralized identifier represents. So what, what does all that mean? Essentially, really what I'm trying to say is the whole point of these, uh, these verifiable credentials and decentralized identifiers is to build uh, a system of trust to share information. And how do you get that trust? How do you know that someone isn't pretending to be something else? You use very complex and difficult maths problems that make it nearly impossible for someone to emulate someone else. That 
is called cryptographic trust. So you don't have to rely on a promise that I am who I, I say I am. You're really relying on the fact that the maths that's involved with me generating a digital signature is very difficult or nearly impossible for someone else to, to emulate. So this technical trust, this cryptographic trust, is the foundation of verifiable credentials. A decentralized identifier talks about, hey, how do you find the public key that's associated with this decentralized identifier? And there's a few different ways that you can do it. So way number one, and it, really we're going into this concept called did methods. And really what a did method represents is just there are different types of dids and they have these different properties. And I'm going to talk about the three that I'm most familiar with. A very simple one is called did key. So a did key unique identifier, it basically is a string that looks like did, like did, colon, key, k-e-y, colon, and then a bunch of seemingly random letters and numbers. That unique address in itself contains the public key of that um, unique identifier. So with that, I can generate a credential and I can make sure that I bind it to the cryptographic public key of the entity that is being represented by that decentralized, that decentralized identifier. I know it kind of sounds confusing, but just, just the pretend. Like, if I was going to send you a letter to your address, I had to make sure that the stamp on the envelope was a special stamp that could only ever be used for your address. The concept of making that special stamp is all this cryptographic stuff. So you don't have to think too, too much about it. There are a whole bunch of standards and it's a whole bunch of technologies and a whole bunch of very smart people who've been thinking about this topic and if you just search for like the decentralized identifier data model on Google, it'll come up with a W3C page about it. Got a far more detail than I can explain to you. But practically speaking, a did key is the simplest decentralized identifier because the information that you need to use it, which is the, this, public, uh, this public key, is inside that random string of letters and numbers. So you don't have to look up anything else, you don't have to go anywhere. You know, it's basically me saying, oh, here's my street address. And by the way, the way to make the magic stamp that you know means that this mail can only ever be delivered to me, I'm gonna include on the envelope that I send to you. So you don't have to go anywhere else because the envelope itself has that information. 
So that's fine, uh, and it makes it really trivial to make these dig keys. But why would you not want them? The problem is, is that sometimes you want to change your public and private key. So in cryptography, and this is, I'm a layman when it comes to this topic. Essentially, if you imagine that there's this thing called a public key, which is this, this publicly shareable number that basically says, if you make something and then you include my number in it, um, then it's going to be encrypted, it's going to be transformed into a format that only I can decrypt. To decrypt it, you need this other thing called a private key. And a private key is kind of the magic key that can decrypt a bunch of information. And the public key and the private key are linked together. So you kind of can't change one without changing the other. But sometimes, and as part of a, a private key, you might have some attributes in it. Like you might have um, a, like a passcode associated to it, or it's going to have attributes such as an expiry date, whatever is the case, they can change. And so you say, oh, okay, I want to change my private key, I want to um, change the expiry date of all this stuff, I want it to be good for another year. Well, if you do that with the key, the literal address changes of the decentralized identifier, because all the information about the public key the instructions that we you know, pretend like we're talking about that letter scenario here, that instruction to create that special stamp is, is, is on the postcard. Well, you know, now that I have a new DID key, the, the numbers, the instructions are going to be completely different. The problem is, is that the DID key also represents the address where the letter is supposed to be going to. So essentially, Really what I'm saying is that did keys are simple, but because they're simple, they actually have a characteristic of that they change a lot. And that makes it really difficult because you need to kind of keep track of, well, what was my did key at that point in time that I was using to like talk to someone. So that's, that's kind of confusing and you can't really have a, a very long lived one. And when I say long lived, I mean, I don't know five or ten years because stuff changes you know um it's a, if you were to imagine that did key is your physical address you live at 123 test street you're renting but landlord says hey you gotta go you move to a new address well then you have to tell everyone what your new address is and it's such a hassle, it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort to do that. This is the same thing. You have a unique address, which is your did key. It's unique to you. Your information, which is your 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 public um, your public key changes. And when that happens, you have to tell everybody what your new did key is. And that's a hassle. 
So if you don't want to do any of that stuff, another way around it... Oh, it's going to get noisy, we've got a rubbish truck coming up. <laughs> a way around dealing with... Dealing with, uh, you know, having a sort of a, a more long-lived address would be for you to have, like, a post office box number. And so a post office box number basically is an address at the post office. And it might be post office box 123 Newtown. And regardless of your physical address, which might be your public key, you can change that and you just say, hey, for the purposes of where you want to deliver something to, just still send it to PO Box 123 Newtown. And an example of that is this decentralized identifier called DidION. So DidION is another Did method. It has a special property, and the special property of it is that the lookup, if you imagine that, you know, you have your physical address where you live in the world, and you have your P.O. box, somebody has to know, ah, this P.O. box address is really owned by this person here. And if they move, it's still owned by this person there. If they change their cryptographic keys, we have a place to put what the old ones were, and we have a place to put what the new ones are. And so the storage of that document that shows you what are the current uh, public keys for that address is stored on some funky stuff. And the funky stuff is this interplanetary file system and it's stored on the blockchain. Look, I know anything that is blockchain kind of immediately, we're all like, mm, feels sketchy but just practically speaking think of it as a big old shared database on a bunch of different computers around the world that stores this little piece of paper that says Waylon's did ion which could be did did colon ion colon other set of random letters and numbers is a pointer to a file that's stored on lots of corporate companies and lots of uh, entities, computers, in a big old shared database. It says, ah, if you're talking to Waylon, it did colon iron colon random strings of letters and numbers. Here is his public key. By the way, here's his previous public keys as well. So that's pretty cool. Means I can change my cryptographic uh, material, I can change my public key and private key, but still keep the same address. Very helpful, right? Like when you move house, you often, maybe, want to keep the same address, even though you live in a physically different place. A PO box does that in the physical world. These did ions do that in this decentralized identifier world. There's another type that does kind of the same thing, 
but you don't have to worry about the blockchain. And it leverages some of the existing trust on the internet. And that's called DidWeb. So if you are a company or you are, I don't know, a geek, you might have your own domain name. So I have my own domain name, it's kenning.co.nz. You can put a document that says, hey, here are the types of digital signatures that I support. And here are the public, uh, the, the public certificates, the public keys that, that I use currently and in the past. So you take all that information and you put it in a document, creatively called a DID document, and you can put that on a, on a web server that is hosted um, at a domain name. So what I mean by all of that is I can have a DID that is unique to me, which can be DID, colon, web, colon, kenning.co.nz. And inside that did, basically, is a way to look up that did document and say, ah, oh, I want to see what public keys Whalen or what kenning.co.nz is currently using. That's very nice because it takes advantage of existing trust on the internet, this domain trust. So as an example, you might trust that if I type into a browser, airnewzealand.co.nz is a thing, is this thing on the internet that really is owned by an airline called airnewzealand.co.nz. Or if I go to a website called nzta.govt.nz that the .nz bit means it's something to do with New Zealand and the .gov, govt, means it is truly a government entity because the only way you can get a gov.nz domain name is to be a government entity. And the nzta bit represents uh, New Zealand Transport Agency or Waka Kotahi. All of that kind of put together says, ah, this decentralized identifier did colon web colon nzta.govt.nz means I'm talking to the New Zealand Transport Agency. So as you can see there, like with did key, you, you don't really know who you're talking to, you just happen to know you're talking to the same thing every time until the key changes and then you've got another random unique address. But did ION, you know, you're, you don't really know who you're talking to, but you know you are talking to the same thing every time, and you can change the public keys that are associated to it, which is very helpful because, you, you know, you might want to use an, a, a new public key for whatever reason. Did WEB has the benefit of, I'm going to associate it to an address that humans can understand. Hence the whole, like, I'm going to use the domain name that I already have. 
So all of that stuff is awesome. And essentially means that you can have this decentralized identifier in this common way that people know who you are and can find you and can issue things to you consistently. That's the whole point of these decentralized identifiers. And without it, the whole verifiable credential ecosystem, it, it wouldn't make sense and it wouldn't work. All right, well, there's a good old chat about decentralized identifiers. Can you believe we've been chatting for just about 30 minutes now? We're coming up to the end of today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed our cordial, our conversation about decentralized identifiers. If you'd enjoyed today's podcast, despite how noisy it is when I walk by the side of the road, please. I don't know, do whatever you do with normal podcasts, subscribe or, or whatever. And let's keep in touch. I'll have another podcast again, maybe next week. Honestly, I wouldn't promise it to you. I'm very inconsistent, but I hope you've enjoyed today's one. And with that, once again, thank you. I'm Waylon Kenning, your strategic consultant on all things decentralized identity, verifiable credentials, self-sovereign identity, the modern world of digital identity, Hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. Thank you and goodbye.